I can hear myself in the mic, yeah. But the music's louder now. Okay, I'll live. What are we going to talk about? Well, first I want you to tell all my friends who you are. Uh, hi, I'm Whitney. Uh, <laughs> don't don't undersell it. This is the this is one of my favorite people in the entire world. What is your Twitter at? WBM312. I'm also on Mastodon. I'm sure you can find me. I don't Mastodon. I know. I just feel like I have to say it because everyone from InfoSec like mass exiled from Twitter, but I refuse to leave. It's a, it happens. We're all my, but hold on. I'm running a lot of things. Yeah, go do your thing. Oh, I'll no, just no, sit no, here I'm, and talk to your audience. I'm looking for people. Of unknown people. Yeah. Um, you, the first time that we ever did this, Yep. Uh, oh, uh, Jake and Chad says your profile pic is the best. Oh, thank you. What is your profile pic right now? It's me laughing like this. That is, I love that. I think I even messaged you one of the first times saying, I just think your profile is so lovely. So here's the most embarrassing thing part about that picture. It's the picture taken of me from my very first hacker con ever. So I'm like young in that photo and I keep trying to get away with it. But at some point I'm not going to look like that anymore. So I, I did the most uh, embarrassing thing. I think it was last shmoo. I was here, and I, you were in oh, front yeah, yeah. of me. Yeah. This is how bad I am. <laughs> listen, <laughs> listen. I, by the way, this is the live, uh, Trimark live podcast, TrimarkSecurity.com, Active Directory, uh, Virtualization, uh, Purple Teaming, and Azure AD, TrimarkSecurity.com, or come talk to us down at the conference. This is not the Danny Show, uh, but uh, it's, now it's the Danny and uh, Whitney Show. Um, I rocked up, and I talked to you for a good five minutes. And I just did not recognize. <laughs> and then we went to dinner. We were at dinner together. And I was like, oh, I think we were sitting next to each other before yeah. I realized that I'm such a shithead. No, it's for totally doing fine. That. I don't mind it at all. If I'm... I ever do that to anybody watching this, I'm sorry. I don't mean it. Um, you're big into privacy, yeah? Yes, I'm that's, big that's into privacy. Kind of, that tends to be my thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what? Anything interesting in privacy? <laughs> you know, that's a. There's always some shit. Um, it's that was never a very tongue-in-cheek question, by the <laughs> way. It's never ending. Um, I mean, just in the United States alone, there are four or five privacy laws that are either are going into effect this year or going into effect early next year. So that's keeping people busy. Um, you know, people kind of care about privacy these days a lot more than they used to. So people are having conversations. Um, I had the great fortunate um, opportunity to talk to uh, the Energy and Commerce Committee yesterday about the new pri federal privacy bill and kind of give my thoughts. And so I'm excited about that. Hopefully it passes one day. So how is it talking to a committee? Do you think they're like listening? Like I, so for me, I've never done, I did a, a slight stint at the FDA as a SOC analyst, which did not matter at all. But I always wonder if like, when you're sitting in front of committees like this, like, can you tell if they care? So for, for what it's worth, I was just meeting with staffers. So I think the staffers cared. Um, yeah. They were asking questions about it and mm. like trying to get opinions. Um, I think it's one of the main things that's on their agenda. And so in that sense, they care. The Congress folk on the committee, I hope they cared. They voted it out of committee. So if they don't care, then I'd be kind of surprised. Right. But um, yeah, I think they care. 
And uh, and and how how big a part of your job is that? Like, are you regularly doing that, or is it? No, no, I do that completely on my like personal time. All of this is my personal views, not related to my company at all. No, I I just I. I think it is helpful for anyone, you know, making these decisions or making these laws, whether they're at the state or federal level, to know what it's actually like to do the operations around privacy and what are actually hard problems. I think this is a similar thing that folks in security or like computer scientists often encounter where you have a series of lawyers or people who aren't in the same technical space who go, well, yeah, can't you just write a program to tell if that's a banana in the photo? And you're like, actually, that's a really hard problem. Yeah. And that's not as easy, you know, they, people have been working on that for a long time and, um, you know, there have been great advancements there, but like, that's not just an easy thing to build from scratch. And so now that when you have those conversations, you say, did you know this is what you're saying in one sentence is actually really hard to do and it's going to take people time to do whether they have infinite resources or not. And I think those conversations are really helpful. Um, um. So actually, you know, I was gonna DM you because I I ended up I was talking to my hairdresser of all people and my fabulous hair, um, and they are uh, enamored with hacking, right? Like when I, I tell them all about DefCon, they're like, "We want to go." I was like, "It's not Coachella, but like, come on!" <laughs> like, like, like for some reason, I think they're like, "It's not Burning Man, bro." Like they were talking about it like that. But anyway, they were super interested, and of course, we get to TikTok. Right. Yep. There was recently a thread by Ray Redacted, who I I love Ray by the way, but like I vehemently was like I I don't, I don't know you, like I was disagreeing with him because like so my thing about TikTok I don't know how much you've read into all of it. Uh, somebody had told me somebody did a, a show and I actually wanted to do it with you, but it's been done already, so I don't know if you can do it again. Of actually going into their privacy policy and reading it line by line to see what exactly is in there. Somebody apparently did it on YouTube and it was like holy shit, look at the stuff that they have. Um, do you, do you have any uh, thoughts on like the like the the full court press to get rid of TikTok now versus like Facebook versus Instagram versus my so my what what, what I what I was positing is I I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. This is a little bit. Why like if you put them all on a shelf together, right? If you put TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and and, and whatever else there is, why is all the fire being directed at TikTok all of a sudden when you should have been directing it? at Facebook or Meta or whatever. Is there a disbalance here? Do you know, have you really looked at I mean, the answer that? is China. Um, this is like the idea that they don't have full control over a parent company or corporation mm. in the same way that they do for Google or Facebook is like, you know, one piece of it. Mm. The thing about TikTok from a privacy perspective is I don't think it is as bad of a from a privacy perspective as it's made out to be in comparison to every other app out there. I think the entire app ecosystem is a bunch of garbage and that apps collect vastly way more information than they absolutely should. And that's why all these like, you know, when you go to a website, they're trying to push you to an application and it's like, that's so they can collect more information and do whatever they want. Um, Apple obviously is, you know, cracking down on it, but from a, TikTok, I'm on TikTok, I don't make videos, but I assume that, you know, all of my interactions, my likes, et cetera, are being sent somewhere to China. But I think that's probably true of a lot of apps that I use. I mean, one of the interesting things I did when I was in graduate school is I was looking at um, ad, um, ad packages and mobile applications. And let me tell you, they click fucking everything. And you have no idea who that ad company is. 
And so I think the information's already out there. I'm not saying that that makes it okay. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, it's not as bad. It's, you know, University of Texas banning their students from joining their Wi-Fi network and using TikTok seems a little ridiculous yeah. to me. And uh, So privacy's not dead? No, I don't think privacy's dead. Um, I think we need to figure out what it looks like in the United States, but globally especially, privacy is still something that so, now is fundamental. Privacy not being dead, right? If, if we're talking about what is required by companies to disclose, to delete, maintain, those are one thing. But then we start to talk about the data breaches and, and the liability and what we cannot control. Yep. Our, our identity, you know, passwords, accounts taken over, even social security numbers are almost all leaked at this point. So do we have an identity? Do we need to reestablish a new identity in order to bring in privacy as a new like next control or next iteration of what we think privacy is? Well, first, I mean, we need to move away from immutable characteristics and numbers to be anyway associated with like a professional identity. What? I completely agree. Yeah, so that's one piece of it. And then, you know, I saw, I haven't filled out my taxes for this year, but I saw the IRS is doing something to like help you have another number that is not your social security number. And I'm I like, we're having another number. Finally. Well, I, well, even if so, I'm hoping you can rotate it that would be an ideal like perspective because you know social security numbers were never meant to be like our unique identifier to do everything so we would we would eliminate a lot of data breaches and or the monetization that hackers have when they disclose these breaches if we remove the value of the identity credit card numbers is a great example social security numbers if there's no monetary value associated with those particular pieces and we move to something that's cryptologically sound like there are countries that have done this why can we not get to that point and, and come up with something that is more sustainable long term no i totally agree i mean I'm just hoping, you know, more cryptography for everything, for everyone. So we're going to put it on the blockchain, right? It's going to be immutable Fuck on the blockchain? no. No. <laughs> no. Everyone knows. No, no more blockchain. Okay, okay. No more FTX. Yeah, all right. Um, we can all be an NFT. So I never introduced our new guests, oh, yes. uh, just our, our interlopers, uh, but this is the Trimark podcast, so I should have my yes. my Trimark fellows with me. We have the great Tyler Robinson, uh, who many of you probably know from a little podcast that I used to know as Paul Security Weekly, or I'm sorry, Paul.com, whatever it used to be called. Then it's Paul Security Weekly, then it's Security Weekly. And now, what flavor are you on? Are you on like the bigger, like? Uh, business Security Weekly, Enterprise Security Weekly, and then the Paul Security Weekly. And then uh, we have uh, Thomas, uh, who is at Wandering Hacker on Twitter. Thomas is uh, also one of our consultants that works with us and uh, hacker extraordinaire. Hello, Thomas. Why can't I hear you? So do you think do you think we can adopt some of the models that have been kind of tried and true? Like look at Estonia is a great example of where they've. Yeah, built. I've heard good things about Estonia, but I've also recently heard some high-level criticisms, and I don't know if in the end it ended up being as. Oh, I like the pig. It's nice. I didn't even know what he put there. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I, I think moving in some sort of direction like that is positive. I think. You know, in the U.S. in particular, the identity conversation, having to be issued an identity, scares a lot of people. 
is that because of change or because of old systems or? I think it's a little bit of change and distrust in the government. Okay. Um, Do you think we have the ability with all of the different government bodies that represent identity today? I mean, between credit, uh, Social Security, the IRS, like, how do we get a conversation going with the right entities in order to actually get to the point where we can affect some change? Because I think those conversations are really difficult to bring into today's structure that, that is the government. It's, it's almost too big to make that change happen. Yeah, I mean, and the way the U.S. government struc is structured in particular makes it really difficult. Um, one, you know, you have branches of, of government, like in the executive branch, you have different agencies that are in the executive branch, and then you have independent agencies, and then you have Congress, and so we have a bunch of different people who have influence over different types of um, you know, departments and agencies, and I think it makes it hard to unify all of them. And I think, um, you know, this is something that these folks are also struggling with from a security perspective as well. No, that, it's hard to come up with something new when you're already cleaning your own house. I think what's gonna have to happen is we're gonna have to have either a nonprofit or a foundation or something that does the legwork, brings the project and the scalability to the government where the proper discussions can happen and then they can get adopted and, and bought in. Because I don't think any individual place has the time, money, resources, or even aptitude to create something new without the help of, you know, I would say, InfoSec, cybersecurity, and, I mean, and cryptography. I mean, I think that's true of any piece of whatever you're doing in making any sort of legislation or making any sort of decision you should consult with stakeholders i do think that the ftc where i full transparently full transparency I, I worked there early in my career um the ftc has a unique position to be uh, a leader in privacy and they already are they're basically our main privacy regulator but the the scope of what they um have control over or can um you know, uh, wow, where is my brain going? With the scope of what they have control over is much narrower than in other countries. They, they don't have control over the financial services as much. They, they can enforce a rule called GLBA, but that's on the consumer protection side. It's a little bit different than like the larger banks um, and, and the scope of what the SEC might have. But then you have like health, like PHI, uh, protected health information. They, they have the, you know, they have a health data rule, but HIPAA in general is generally enforced by HHS. So we'll see what happens with it, but I would love for the United States to consider at least moving away from a, um, you know, sectoral-based privacy structure. I wonder if that's a place where DHS or CISA, where they've been expanding their purview, they've got a lot of expertise, they now have purview even into private companies with the security mindset and capabilities and continue testing. I wonder if that is something that they could actually begin to establish even a framework for that we could, maybe FTC is the one that the implements, but the, the framework and the model is designed through programs like that. That seems like a, a worthwhile venture. I mean, I'm sure the two agencies are speaking already, but the FTC's been regulating security longer than CSIS existed. And so I actually think they're still the right ones and they've, they, they have, you know, given guidance out to businesses and small businesses, et cetera, around security. Oh no, we lost one of our speakers. Bye!
Thomas. Well, it's generous to say he was a speaker because my Yeti was not working. Listen, I'm doing this for the first time here live. No, it's okay. I, I love felt it. so bad. I was like, Thomas, I can't wait to have you on, bro. And he's like, oh, I don't know. Oh, I should have given up my seat. No. Uh, he wouldn't have let you do that. No, not, not at all. So what do you think the general consumer can actually do for themselves currently? Like, we, we've got this pie-in-the-sky view. We've got... All of our stuff is breached, it's disclosed, it's out there, we're consistently dealing with identity theft, fraud at the financial level, all those things. So from a privacy standpoint, are there legitimate things that the regular consumer, that outside of InfoSec or even cyber, can do to protect themselves? Yeah. Definitely. So one, I think a lot of people say, well, everything's so bad. Like, why should we care in the future? It's all over. It's this very nihilist sense of privacy. Can't give up. Right? But at the same time, any actions we're making now protect people who don't exist yet or whose information we may not have yet. And so there is the idea that even if it's not going to help me today, it might help somebody else in the future um, or, you know, a future child. So um, that's one thing that, like, I do think these things are important and when you start looking through it that lens I think it feels a lot less hopeless that being said what can the average consumer do okay so privacy notices which are often labeled like a privacy statement I think um, I've written a couple in my life um, they are very difficult to write they have a lot there are laws that require you to say certain things and you know you want to explain complex topics in a simple way that's readable to the end user, but when you do that, then it's really long. And so, I, you know, people love to look at privacy notices and, and feel like they have the whole picture, and I actually don't think that's the answer. But I do think, you know, using and engaging with and giving money to privacy-focused technologies really goes a long way. Um, you know, using the Brave browser, using Firefox over Chrome, using um, Safari even is better than Chrome, um, choosing to use Signal and donating to them, um, using Tor and donating to them. Those types of things signal your purchase power, and I think that's a big way that you can, like, one, protect your own data, but also give back to the people who are spending the money to actually make these technologies. Do you think a lot of a lot of the missing element here is education as well? I mean, we, we look at something like Ancestry.com or 23andMe and like all of the CRISPR and genetic data that's being sold. Again, we go back to, I, I care about this and I want to dive in on this and protect this because it is my children or my grandchildren that that genetic information is now going to deny them a life insurance policy in the future. That's a big deal to me and that's part of the legacy. So how do we begin to spread that awareness of the instant gratification that is being given as a trade for your data and your privacy that most people don't have any concept of long-term thought process and strategic advantage to, to that data and, and what they're giving away for that trade. Yeah, I actually think the answer is kind of twofold. One is education about you know the tool and service, making sure that you are aware. So I think whenever you engage in giving away your data, at any point you should say, do they need to have this? Can, is this truly optional? Can I be more thoughtful about this? Can I push back? Really quickly, may I just say, the number of security companies or security-oriented organizations, and I'm sorry I'm going to call out Black Hat, who have asked for my social security oh, no, number, who have asked for my social security number over email, 
is insane. And so you have to say, wait a second, I'm not giving you this piece of information unless you absolutely need it. And if you do need it to make a payment, like, please call me over the phone to collect that information. So I think doing something like that and educating people that they should push back is one big thing. The second thing is, like, we should actually change the laws. That's like... 23andMe, Ancestry.com should not hold on to genetic data indefinitely. And they should not be able to share genetic data to whoever they freaking want. Period. Like, that is absolutely something that when you give over that data, you should be able to control and choose exactly what happens to it. And I think maybe one day we'll get there, but I think a lot of bad things have to happen first for, you know, folks in Congress to actually act and, and move on it. I'm surprised the states haven't regulated this area more. But it might be because there is a federal genetic information privacy law that's pretty weak, but like high level as far as like what it restricts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the fact that we're now starting to think about some of those and there's some laws in place. I mean, that's a step in the right direction. The, the problem, again, comes back to we're already too late in, in a lot of this. Like, it's not like you can change your genetics. Your DNA doesn't change. Your precursors don't change. That Once that information has been purchased, you don't really take it back. It's just like a kid with their iPad and phone. Once you've given those privileges, you don't remove them because it, it's difficult to find all that data. I think that's true, but I think if you actually passed a law that said you can't use this data, and if you do, this is the penalty. Monetary penalties. Right, like monetary the penalties or... like. And if you had a private right of action, imagine you or your someone in your ancestry could sue because they use genetic data related to a relative on your behalf. Like that's going to deter people from actually doing it. And so my hope would be that we definitely lock down genetic data just because it's immutable and it says things about other people. Yes. But it has been such an effective tool by police to you know find information about really and, and crimes and research Disease. that like you have to figure out a way to weigh some of those like benefits oh, Tyler being catcalled he has to do this they're yelling beers Paul, for Paul everyone has my, my credit card <laughs> oh that's dangerous. Oh, it has a, oh, look at that. That's a fancy MX. Is that a plane? Yeah, it's made out of one of the Boeing plane metal. Oh, they, oh, wow. Credit cards are so interesting. See, see that, I worked there, at a credit a good, card company once. We spent all this money on chip and pin to secure credit cards and transactions. Oh, oh my gosh. What did that help us? Can we talk about credit card supply chain security? Oh, please. Sure. Let's do. We got nothing but time, my love. Um, nothing but time. So I worked for a credit card company. I'm not going to say their name in the past. And I was there briefly. Um, but one of the most interesting things I found out about are the manufacturers who actually print the credit cards. There's like a main one up in Wisconsin and they have like no security. You can go and they're like printing the cards with number, like names, like go on in. You can see credit cards that haven't come out. I was kind of, kind of surprised by that uh, when someone came and was like, yeah, we got a tour of it. And it's like not that much security. And I was like, I guess that makes sense. Uh, and then does it matter because everybody takes the number anyway for online purchases and or, you know, we've migrated to this touchless purchase. Yeah, the transaction in motion is more secure. That doesn't mean the back-end payment systems have improved at all. Yeah, yeah. 
anyways, I just thought that was kind of interesting because of all the industries you would have expected, like the actual card printers to be pretty secure. Um, and <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I take issue with the expect, comma, anything to be secure. No. Of all the industries that dealt with breaches first, that like had so much better. pain, you would think like credit card numbers was such a thing for so long that, that you would have thought after a hand that they would have had an incident that would have been big enough for them to like actually try to care. That comes back to the, the monetary the monetary business risk decision, right? Like we've not gotten to the point where the cost of those breach or the credit cards and fraud has gotten to a point where it affects their bottom dollar because they pass that back to the consumer via interest rates and all the other things they do. So really we almost need a governing body over banks and the lenders that are doing and providing these numbers that are insecure. I mean, social security numbers are a whole different thing, but. I will tell you the banks and the card companies have like seven regulators. Like there are so many regulators. I think they don't even know which one is their main one in a lot of times, but yeah, they, they're only first starting to really, really dig into security. I think there's there's been a little bit, but I'm seeing a lot more movement um, as of late. Um, there is an organization called FINRA, which regulates broker-dealers, and they're a, it's a type of financial institution. And I went to their, their security conference, and they were very excited because their website was rolling out 2FA. And I was like, oh, oh boy. And this was the year, it was 2019, oh early gosh. 2020. And I was like, they're like, we're, we've rolled out 2FA. And I'm like, oh my God. And yet they, as an organization, had been requiring 2FA or that level of security on the people they regulate, I think, for a while. So I was quite surprised about that. There is some interesting technologies that I'm surprised haven't actually taken off more. The, the one-time credit card usage. Yeah. Uh, was it, is it privacy.com? Yeah. 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 The one-time credit card, that's one of the most brilliant and creative ways I've thought of that maintains an identity, provides you the you know, playing with inside the rules that you have to play with to make purchases, to do you know, whatever you're going to do online. I think those kind of things need to be adopted more readily and actually pushed from the financial institutions as a de facto. And I, I think virtual, the move to virtual cards was a big part of that too, right? That was a, that's a relatively new-ish, and I would say last five years where that has become much more acceptable and the virtual card like even the apple card right you can rotate your card number instantly and get a new one if you feel like it might have been compromised um the card that like is on your physical one they don't even print it on the card because they don't want you to know it yeah. and then they give a token to whoever is actually you know processing your payment and so no one knows what the card number is, not even you. This and, is how we should be doing this. And I agree. Yeah, you just like hide it from people. We don't really need to know. The only place it tends to break is the people who want to take the manual payments and, you know, over. Does that even exist anymore? Oh, yes. Yeah. Really? Yes. Yeah. Shady, well, usually shady places. <laughs> I, I'm not shopping in enough of the shady places then, I guess. But what's funny is no one's printing um, elevated card numbers anyways. Yeah. And so, so like, they end up just having to handwrite it. There's Which is terrifying, uh, too. Uh, Bill in chat said, and writing down, and I don't know these acronyms, you may, uh, writing down CHP, PAN, and SAD down yeah. on paper yep. in the mail is still a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's crazy to me. Um, any like especially when they ask for CVV or full pan, you know, which is almost most most online payments 
stores that are not big. But frankly, I actually don't care. I will write my credit card down and stick it in the mail because you know what? If there's fraud, it's chances it's going to be caught. Second, I can rotate that number pretty quickly, especially if I'm using something like my Apple virtual card number to, to make that payment. And if you if you have a good credit card provider, you know, if I use my Amex, Amex would not blink twice at like helping fix that issue. So I think that's part of why those practices continue. In uh, in chat, uh, Dev said uh, we, we need chat G GPT to monitor our credit cards. You know, that's not a bad idea. <laughs> how how would even how did that even work? ChatGPT, will you uh, keep an eye on this social security number and credit card across all open breaches and file directories? And please don't tell anybody else what it is. Yes. Yeah. So let's let's shift gears. Let's talk about social media privacy. Okay. We so were just talking about the whole TikTok and I was going to say TikTok and the general population and their ability to look at and trade knowingly their privacy for convenience in order to be a part of something. Can we find a medium in places that we do not control, like Twitter, like TikTok? Is there a happy medium where we can get to a place of privacy? Because my mom doesn't care, my grandma doesn't care about you know, privacy. They say, what do I have to hide, what do I have to lose? You know, They don't want to give up the app. Us, we all know the risk and we make a business risk decision. Some of us do it more safely, some of us add privacy features, but that still doesn't deter the money and monetary value that's being sold from our ad tracking data, our heuristics, our long-term spending, all of the things that make the money for these places. Is there a way to live in the modern age, especially for the younger generation, do social media and have privacy? So I think this is what is starting to happen in Europe because GDPR starts with this idea of you cannot process data, right? That is like the base. But if you process data, you must have a legal basis. And there are six legal bases in which you can choose. Now, what those are actually going to shake out and look like over time, we're starting to see out of some of the decisions. So this is kind of a legal answer. But as we continue to put more pressure and say, hey, you actually can't, you know, collect random data about this person without them opting in. And you can't just hide it behind the terms of service and say, well, because you accepted the terms of service, this is okay. We're truly looking at like changing the way the user interface is going to be displaying disclosures. And so, you know, kind of more in the US what's happening here, so the Federal Trade Commission, people may have seen on the internet, Twitter and the Federal Trade Commission, like order, consent order that everyone's saying, oh, the Twitter employees, Elon's gonna get in trouble. So what happened in that case is that uh, Twitter was collecting phone numbers and for specifically for 2FA and in their private and they said we're collecting this for 2FA and in their privacy notice it said that they could use phone numbers for marketing practices and you're thinking okay it's in the privacy notice we're used to things getting hidden and buried in privacy notices and then therefore we get screwed the FTC said we don't care that it was in the privacy notice because it was at the time of collection, you said it was for security, the, a reasonable user would think that was the only thing it would be used for. And so we're starting to see the shift. And so that to me is the beginning of this conversation about social media privacy, which is people aren't gonna be able to just collect whatever and use it for whatever purpose anymore. We're really gonna look at something that's gonna be much more tailored. And then you're gonna have to figure out what is your value for advertising. I actually think like targeted advertising, the 
way it exists now is not going to exist in five five years. Like, and people are already prepared for the death of a cookie. Like, it's happening. The the EU in particular, and even in the U.S., they are trying to kill the cookie. Um, there's something called gro uh, global privacy control. You can turn it on in Firefox, Safari. It's on by default in Brave. Um, that sends a signal to every single company that they cannot drop any advertising and targeting cookies on your... And, and so you don't even have to click a banner. They have to respect that. And California law now requires that every company respect that signal. And so we're starting to see these incremental changes where someone shouldn't have to worry or be educated to know that their information is being collected in a weird way. Um, that being said, in social media, um, I think people have to choose whether they want an identity and whether or not to be out there. And I think that's an okay thing because privacy is about choice. The, the interesting part about that is a lot of these places are going to have a hard time existing, at least in their current capacity, with the features that they're doing without the money and revenue that they're getting from the data that they're selling. That's a huge part of that data. I mean, I think we're seeing a huge reckoning on tech generally. They're talking about a tech recession right now. I just saw Google is going to be laying off 15,000 employees um, in the coming weeks, and that's a lot. And you're thinking, well, what's going on? And their ad monetization model is going to have to change. And I think this idea of you'd go to your employer because they've made so much money off of selling ads based on your data, and therefore you get free laundry at work, I think that's going to go away. I mean, my first job was in government. I had to pay $6 to get access to the water cooler. So I think we're just going to see kind of a shift in that way where, you know, this expensive, you know, perks, they're going to start to pull back because they're not going to be able to spend the money that they used to. I think instead of hiring 10 people to do something, they'll hire two. Do you think that historical data can ever get reconciled and removed? Are we at a point where the data that already exists has a pretty good indicator of who we are, what we are, moving forward? That data being historically archived and, and ad companies having it, do you think there will be a reckoning where they're going to be required to delete and remove that? Like We've seen that with, with GDPR a little bit, but even that... That data still ends up in, in brokers' hands and, and archived in other places that it was sold prior to that that doesn't fall under it. I think we're getting there. I think deletion is a hard problem. Like when we talk about, like, uh, we, I think before you joined, hard problems and engineers and lawyers, not sometimes, and just non technical people, sometimes not understanding what's a hard problem. Deletion is a hard problem. And I think that's one of the most misunderstood things out there. So we're st GDPR went live um, almost five years ago this May. And I think it could take a reasonable company with a lot of data a year or two to like build true good deletion systems, maybe even longer than that. So maybe they're just finishing completing that because they're like, oh, I need to take GDPR seriously. But we have the California, um, you know, privacy laws, CCPA and CPRA. We have Virginia, Utah, Colorado, and Connecticut all passed state privacy laws that have some sort of deletion requirement. So. You have to delete data, like that's coming. I think for the ad networks too, it's not just ad hoc, hey, I wanna reach out to you to delete my data. I think the FTC in particular here in the US, and the EU regulators are already doing this, are gonna say data retention. You cannot hold on to this data forever. So in some way, I'm hoping, and I, I believe in ad networks, they say data gets old like after two weeks, right? Like my hope is, I agree. Okay. Sorry, I, that, that's old radio habit. Whenever we make a plan, like, I have a thing next. 
What do you think about uh, 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 bad code in chat says, what do you think about employees' right to have employers delete their data? So I think it's really interesting. So in the EU, um, that, that, that right's been around since 2018 when GDPR li went live. Here in, in I, I'm, I live in California. In California, that right just went into effect January 1, 2023. There are multiple laws on the books, both in California and federally, that require employers to keep data about their employees for a certain period of time. So the right is kind of interesting in that it feels like it's absolute and that it might overrule that, but it won't. The law, you are allowed to complete those rights unless you have to keep that data by law. So one good example is applicants. If you apply for a job, you now can go and say, hey, I'd like you to delete the data that you have on me. Well, there's a federal law, and I can't remember which one, but it says employers have to keep application data for all of the people applying for their company for one year. So we'll, okay, we'll put you on a list and wait until we actually delete your data one year later. But that's where data retention policies are going to become really important. I think in California, there's a specific law that says application data has to be kept for four years. So I'm all for these. What I think will happen is that there will be systems that are not in scope of these laws where the data will be deleted. But you, any company who has really thought through what their risks are, holding on to employee data for a long time is just a risk. It just is, and so you should dump it if, as soon as you can while complying with the law. Hopefully they're satisfied with that non-answer answer. That came from one of our coworkers, so he should just be satisfied with it. <laughs> do you want to do you want to switch? No, no, no. You can no. hop in with me. No, no, he's he's hopping in over here. I just had the thought. You sit over here. We have another trimark. Uh, well, oh, man. well, he was silent earlier, but now he's going to hop in on the conversation because I thought I should have thought of this 30 minutes ago. So the, the next big issue, I think, in here? privacy, on, on top of what we've been talking about, social media is a big one, identity is a big one. I think the elephant in the room is still mobile devices. And uh, Bryson, Bryson dropping in for, uh, for what's up. Uh, a wild Bryson board wild appears. Bryson. Bryson Hi, appears Bryson. live. Yes, you're very pretty. We get it. You're very pretty. You are pretty. Look at that. Take a screenshot of you. Take a screenshot. Now the the mobile the mobile data and our cell phones and and what is actually collected that in that way and our lack of choice there really we have two ecosystems we have a it's almost like it's almost like Congress we have two parties here Apple and Google and both of those monetize that information in different ways and it is important to them in other ways. And I don't see the ability for us to maintain the level of functionality that we require for our mobile devices now and all the capabilities that it has while maintaining privacy without the risk of someone abusing or having access. How to am it. I going to sell you my ads? <laughs> how, how is, you know, I mean, legitimately there are reasons that the NSA has developed ways to track people, phones, ping things like those are needs and necessities, but that data is also still accessible and there's also a risk and been abused in the past, and not just by mobile providers or governments, but by individuals. SIM swapping is a huge thing in order to gain access to financials. So we have these, these mobile devices that I think is the next frontier of maybe where we start with privacy by design and, and being secure, 
but that has to come from one of the competitors in that two-person two ecosystem, and I just don't I mean, know if they're going to do it. No, I, I mean, but I think this is already happening with Apple. I mean, their own ad network better. aside. Okay, let's put Apple's ad, no, ad network aside. They no are trying to... My wall what? No one's allowed my wall garden. <laughs> They are making moves in a way that is pushing Google to make moves. Yes. I don't think Google's going to do ever anything like the app tra transparency tracking where you have to opt in to be tracked, right? That, you know, Facebook or Meta or whatever the hell they call themselves the, these days. By the they, default apps. I mean, there's overrides that they can do and when, when right, needed. But, and if they're <laughs> caught, Apple's kicking them out. Or most recently, I think, was it the FTC? Or it was an EU regulator. There was somebody who's collecting an IDFV, which for those not familiar with it, is a mobile device identifier for vendors, which you're supposed to use to be able to identify like, if you own multiple apps on a, a user's phone. It, there's a lot of value to it. But Apple has strict rules saying you cannot use this for advertising. You can't use this to track the user in these particular ways. And now, Why are they doing that here in the U.S.? Yeah. So in the U.S., it's also not, like it's in violation of Apple's like terms. So they'll boot you off That's if they catch you doing it. Or and it's, they're supposed to catch it in the review process. But apparently it was happening. And the EU regulator, I don't remember which one. I swear I saw it last week. So if anyone wants to Google it, but find them for using the IDFV without the consent and going around Apple's app transparency framework because they basically said that's deceptive right of the end user because they said no you cannot track me through this framework and then went and did it anyways now that's interesting too because we have we have the, the device itself but we also have protocols and technologies like BLE for, for right. one like grocery stores now can tell because they've got BLE and Wi-Fi scanners they know every movement where your eyes are looking how long you sat in front of a particular product they leverage that and that's part of the consent to walking into a private entity in order to purchase. Well, which gets to the really interesting point of like what is consent and when is it lawful. So the way we think about consent here in the United States is very different than the way they think about consent in the EU. And that's why I asked the question. Those regulators are coming down. They're coming down, they're right? They're doing that here. Right. And so I think if Walgreens or CVS, because I think those are popular ones that have been known to do beacon tech, you know, beacons. Um, you know, I think if the FTC said, no, you can't do that unless a user absolutely um, opts in, and, you know, it's pretty easy to find out if they're doing it, right? That's going to be a huge fine. And so I think we're moving in that direction, but I think we've been in support of kind of like privacy dark times in favor of technological innovation. And now that we have that technological innovation... Privacy cash grab. Yeah, cash grab. We just have to start asking ourselves, what's the right thing to do for the future, and where do we go from here in, a, in our society? And that should start at the, at the corporate level. These companies, like if you are a company, a leader of a company, and you're trying to move forward, maintain customers, and have a distinction with inside the market, I think that's going to become a, a bigger play than it currently is. We don't typically oh, think about it when we're buying you know, the cheapest router, right? Like, like even if we're looking at IoT, we don't really think about the security. We think about our cost and budget. They don't think about security because they have a production and minimum viable security for whatever amount they're going to make. So at this point, we're going to have to move to the point where we do this. And this has to be with inside of the corporations pushing this down and being distinct in who they are and what they're doing. Yeah, I, 
I think also at the protocol level, right? Like, I think this is something like you see happening within IETF, um, where we have to actually design protocols with privacy in mind. Yeah. Yeah, build the infrastructure. Yeah. If you don't have the infrastructure, we're putting the burden on probably the wrong people to make those decisions. Yep, right. absolutely. Yeah. Give them the tools to make it happen. Yeah. We're getting there. Yeah. Well, well, we hope. This has been an amazing long conversation. Yeah, I can share. I'll share. Welcome back. Welcome back to the I show. I have nothing to add to the conversation because the three of you are all incredibly so smart. Uh, and I just figured out that I could also listen in on other headphones. So I'm learning too. Oh, that's nice. Uh, but no, like we've went super over. We're at an hour and a half. Um, and if the conversation has run its course, this has been... Yeah. So even somebody in chat was like, this has been a really dope conversation <laughs> that I didn't... Like, I had no plans. I, I caught Bill Pollock from No Starks, and I was like, Bill, come here and talk to me. And then Whitney have him by, and then Tyler and you, so you guys are awesome. Um, wow. Thanks for all the work, man. This is a big setup for, yeah, for a conference. So. I, nice dude, I, I, I managed to get into, like, a few different bags. Um, so, yeah, we do this every Friday. At, uh, it's now going to be 2 p.m., the Trimark Happy Hour. Uh, usually about an hour long, so thank you, everybody, uh, for doing this. And, by the way, tomorrow night, we are live streaming the Shmoo Game Show from the uh, Hacker Game Show channel. Be exciting. Everybody tune in. Dude, it's really, really good. Uh, so, yeah, TrimarkSecurity.com, at TrimarkSecurity, uh, on uh, Twitter, and uh, for all of your Azure AD, AD, Purple Team, and uh, virtualization needs. God, D would be like... You didn't mention the visa. So thank you to everybody, and Thanks, I'm going to pack up, and we'll be back tomorrow night. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye.